Remember, we can come to literature at different points in our life and get new things out of it. Like you can read the line which in the wardrobe at third grade as a bedtime read aloud with your mom or dad, and then read it again in, in high school and then read it again when you're 75 years old and yeah. still get something <clears throat> wonderful out of it each time. So that is where the best literature comes in. And, and it, that's the, the great art that we want to expose our children to is the kind of literature that's meaningful across your life. This is Your Morning Basket, where we help you bring truth, goodness, and beauty to your homeschool day. Hi, everyone, and welcome to episode 103 of the Your Morning Basket podcast. I'm Pam Barnhill, your host, and I am so happy that you're joining me here today. Well, on today's episode of the podcast, I am so excited to share a new resource with you. It's a resource for all parents, but especially for homeschooling parents. And in this book, author Sherry Blumquist has kind of broken down the classic children's literature canon. And she's laid out this objective canon for us to have a look. And she's going to explain a little more about what that means in the podcast. But these children's books that our children can be introduced to before they read the classic great books. The name of this resource is Before Austin Comes Aesop, The Children's Great Books and How to Experience Them. And the wonderful thing is, is this is not just a collection of book lists though it certainly is. It's also Sherry's own insights into why these books are important and why we might be harming our kids by pushing down adult books into the childhood years. But also it is an outline and a guide for homeschooling parents to use to show their kids how to read books and to create your own literature curriculum. So this is a really exciting resource and I think you are going to enjoy our conversation today. Speaking of exciting resources, I have one for you. If you would like someone to plan out your morning basket for you, well, we've got you covered. You can come try a sample set of our morning time plans on the website. Those are at pambarnhill.com forward slash month. And in this sample set of morning time plans, we have laid out for you a whole month of truth, goodness, and beauty with some great children's stories, art, music, nature study, and so much more. So come download your free sample month of morning time plans at pambarnhill.com forward slash month. And now on with the podcast. Sherry Blomquist is a homeschool mom, freelance writer, and a teacher with a degree in English education and the Bible from the University of Northwestern. She holds a certificate in children's fiction writing from the Institute of Children's Literature. She provides a variety of language arts classes through her website, Once Upon a Pen, and she has also written courses, articles, poems, and stories for the Old Schoolhouse and other magazines. Her recent book is Before Austin Comes Aesop, The Children's Great Books and How to Experience Them. It's a useful resource for anyone wanting to invite their children into a fulfilling reading life. Sherry, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much. We are so glad to have you here. Could you tell us a little bit about yourself and your homeschool years? I'm a Colorado almost native. I'm from Colorado, grew up there, um, lived all over the country. I began homeschooling in 2005. 
with my two oldest of five children. And I have been homeschooling um, most of that time ever since uh, with all of them. None of them have gone through homeschooling completely, but um, I've done uh, homeschooling since 2005 for the most part. And now I am homeschooling my seventh grade son as well. And I have also taught in the homeschool community uh, for most of those years in various uh, homeschool co-ops and academies for in both Minnesota and Colorado. Uh, today, I am a freelance tutor where I teach uh, my own courses. And uh, I also teach, I continue to teach for the homeschool community uh, in, in a formal sense as well. So yeah, and I've been writing since uh, my childhood, so I've always loved fiction writing, and um, I do that whenever I can. I do have another book coming out in October, um, oh, wow. so yeah, so I'm pretty excited about that. And yeah, so I just keep up with my projects and, and my teaching for the most part, as well as taking care of my household and my homeschoolers. I love that. Okay. So what oh, you'll have to like, give us a sneak peek. The book in October, is it also about uh, children's literature? Or are you, have you gone off on another topic? No, this is a fictionalized biography of Maria Von Trapp and the Von Trapp family of Sound and Music fame. Oh. And it is um, the true story of the Von Trapp family, which is just as fascinating as the movie uh, version, the Broadway version, which made um, a number of changes but the, uh, the real story is just as fascinating. So I'm excited to share that with the world. Okay. That sounds totally awesome. So uh, <laughs> it's going to be out in October. So that means it's available. I think so. Okay. I think so. I don't, a, I don't have any specific date yet. So uh, from the publisher, so I can't give any uh, formal information about the, the title or the publication date yet. Okay, but, but we're going to be through Ignatius. Okay, we're going to be watching for that one then through Ignatius, who also published before Austin uh, comes Aesop. So tell me a little bit about why you decided to write uh, this book on the children's great books. Well, it it kind of came in in two stages. Um, the first stage was back in two thousand seven, I believe. I began teaching for a local homeschool academy in Minnesota, and I was disturbed at how many adult books were being um, were being assigned to the the eighth, ninth, tenth graders, and they were they were adult classics like along the lines of Bronte and Dickens, and there were a lot of them, and that kind of disturbed me because I was like, how can they absorb this many in one year? And these are adult books, and you know what about all these amazing children's classics that they might not otherwise read because they're at their level, but they're not reading them. So that kind of bothered me. Um, and I continued to mull that over the years and I became in, immersed in, in classical education and, and uh, I've always loved classic literature and, and modern literature, children's literature that is. And um, in 2014, as part of my own education, just because I, I like to study um, various topics, I found a book on Children's Literature History by Seth Lair. I can't remember the exact title. Uh, I, I think it's classic children's literature, a reader's history or something like that by Seth Lair, who's a professor. And as I read the book, um, it's a straight history of children's literature from ancient times. And I began to think, you know, if these are the if these are the books that have carried us through history, that have developed literary history in, in the children's realm, then there must be a counterpart 
to the, the Western great books canon that includes, you know, like Dante and Milton and Shakespeare, those, those, those greats that we all want to have read, <laughs> um, there must be a children's counterpart to that. What are they? You know, because there's so many amazing children's classics and there are so many literature programs for homeschoolers that have so many different choices. And uh, sometimes they just seem random. Like, why are we reading this book and not this book? Why is this curriculum not including this book, but it includes this book? And you start to wonder, you know, is there some particular value to some books over others? And so my wheels started turning in my head and I wanted, I decided, you know, what are the really most um, foundational, most important books of children's literature and why are they important? And what are the ones we should be focusing on in, in education so that our children have a strong foundation of literature to prepare them for these great books that, that will come in upper high school and college. And so I started to examine and study and write, and I didn't even have this book in mind at the time. Um, I was just going to self-publish a little booklet eventually, but it kind of just grew and grew and grew. <laughs> and here we are. So. <laughs> oh, I love it. I love it. So you talk about classic children's literature um, and, you know, as kind of a, its own canon, you know, compared to the regular Western canon. So why classic literature? Why is classic literature so important for our kids or actually not for kids, but, you know, for kids becoming adults, because that's where we're going with this to read. Mm -hmm. That's really a very important question. And um, I, having been in education since 1994 in various roles, various, um, in various venues, like I've been in private public, you know, uh, charter schools, I've been in boarding school, I've been in many different educational capacities in different roles. So I've seen a lot over the years. And there is a strong case in the educational community for focusing on modern literature or themed literature that is directly relatable to modern children. And I don't, I don't deny the value of the argument, uh, of their arguments, because we do want our children to be able to relate to, to books that are meant for them. However, we are also uh, citizens of Western civilization. This is our this is our whole world. We we have a um, we have a, a, a country that is founded in Western ideals, um, and that may not be um, a value to everyone in our society today. But the reality is that is who we are. That's where we come from, and I believe, along with classical uh, educators, that it is extremely important to understand your own civilization, to understand that foundation before you can really build on it and draw in other ideas. It is all part of the great conversation of the ages mm -hmm. where we examine ideas from, from the past, from the ancient times, and we see how those ideas have unfolded and uh, have built upon each other over the ages and how each great author or each minor author has borrowed and been influenced by pre those who have come before them. And it is this great conversation that has reached us to today to where we are now. But if we don't, it's like not studying history. If you don't read the literature of the past and, and of what has made us who we are today, then you have less insight into today's literature, into today's, into today's history, and into today's 
civilization. So classic literature is important for helping us to understand ourselves and our own society. And for that reason, I think that children in their schooling need this fundamental um, study of classic children's literature, in addition to literature that is more modern and maybe leisure, leisurely, maybe uh, not important, but you know, books that they love, that's all right mm-hmm. too. But we've got to have that foundation to, to prepare us for higher thinking, higher levels, and for understanding ourselves. Oh, I love that answer. And, you know, it's funny because when I started looking through the book list that you included in the book, I was a little, uh, it wasn't what I expected, you know, and we're, we're going to talk about that in just a minute. But first, I'm, I'm going to leave a cliffhanger here for the listener. <laughs> because the, the question I want to ask you first is, why do you think that reading these children's classics are a nest? Why do you think that that's a necessary step in preparing the reader to read more challenging works? Uh, well, first of all, many of the great authors, well, let's say all of the great authors, <laughs> I should say all, were once children themselves. They too were educated on the the literature that came before them that was at at their time. And many of the authors that have come down to us today were classically educated because that's what there was in in European and early American education. And so they read these books as well. They were influenced by these ideas. They built upon them themselves. And so they, um, they were influenced by them. Another reason is that we have to remember that actually many of the children's classics are also adult classics. Homer's The Odyssey, Pilgrim's Progress. Some of these children's books that are in my book are also adult classics. It's just that children have embraced them throughout the centuries and made them their own. And so we have to stop thinking in terms of this is a child, children's book, this is an adult book, and we and we have to keep them uh, totally separate. Um, that's that's not necessarily true. Um, we you know art is art, and so um, you know some of the the easier ones are necessary for leading us to the more difficult ones. But um, many of these cross over, and they're meaningful to both adults and children. So if we start with these great children's ones like like uh, Winnie the Pooh and Peter Rabbit and uh, fairy tales and nursery rhymes, they help prepare us for the higher ones. Also, because there's so many allusions and so many references that are made to some of these books, like you're going to see references to Cinderella and Robin Hood and King Arthur and um, some of these uh, um, fairy, you know, Nursery rhymes, if you see them alluded to and referred to in uh, adult literature and in higher children's literature. So when we have that foundation, then we are prepared for those references. That's another reason. Oh, all great reasons. Yeah, there's other reasons, too. I'm just uh, those are a couple at least to start with. Yeah. Okay. So when you talk about something like the Pilgrim's Progress, so this is something that comes up with homeschoolers. It's like, well, wait until they can read it for themselves and don't, you know, read them some kind of chewed up and redigested children's version of it. But you actually talk about in the book, um, Little Pilgrim's Progress. So oh, it's Wendy- amazing. I love that book. It's my, 
fave, one of my favorites. <laughs> okay. So f- for you, Little Pilgrim's Progress, that's a children's classic, not necessarily just a regurgitated version of the Pilgrim's Progress. Well, let's just say it's an excellent children's retelling of the original. I wouldn't call Little Pilgrim's Progress a classic in its own right, but it is an excellent retelling for that children can relate to. But I, I used to feel like abridgments and simplified versions were a bad idea. And I am kind of still a little squeamish about them because, of course, we know we want our children to read the, the real deal, not a uh, shadow of the real thing, because the real one is what is the art. But it is a, I've come to feel it's a very good idea to maybe introduce children to the higher level classics and simplified children's versions if you can get good ones. Um, because it getting the stories, getting them familiar with the stories can help make it easier to uh, absorb the, the, real, the real versions when they are old enough. For example, Odyssey, the Odyssey, Mary Pope Osborne has an excellent Tales of the Odyssey series in which children can become familiar with the stories of Odysseus uh, through the six-volume six series in a very simplified way. But they're great stories. Um, and by the time they get old enough to read the full thing, the full, uh, the real Odyssey, then it might be easier to understand the difficult language in the uh, translation. So, you know, I, it's not a bad idea, I don't think. Yeah. Okay. So that's a great clarification because you mentioned the Odyssey earlier and I'm like, wait a second. But yeah, (laughs) that's exactly what we did. We actually read uh, the children's Homer a couple of different times. Yeah. And and we did the Mary Pope Osborne on audio as well. And so, uh, you know, some really great versions and we enjoyed Mm -hmm. uh, Black Ships Before Troy, which of course is a retelling of the Iliad. Right. Yes. And those are, that's probably even better writing than, than Osborne. She's probably writing for a third, fourth grade level. I uh, believe that the children's Homer is a little higher level and, and well-written. Um, can't remember specifically on that, but that's what I seem to remember. Yeah. And my kids love those stories just, you know, mm-hmm. very, very much so. Okay. So now my next question, how do you know which works should get priority? Because you've included in the book, kind of uh, this, this actually it's the bulk of the book, this extensive book list. And, you know, at first, as I was looking through it, I was coming to selections where I was like, oh, I didn't expect that one in here. Oh, I didn't expect that one in here. And I think when it came right down to it, when I kind of evaluated what I was seeing in there, um, when we say kind of classic children's literature, we're not just talking about, uh, you know, sometimes you get these homeschool book lists that are only old books, only kind of, um, I don't know what's the word I'm looking for, like moralistic stories or moralistic tales or something like that. Mm -hmm. And they don't include any modern books or you get a lot of historical fiction, which, you know, by and large, that is what not on your list at all, with the exception of maybe Johnny Tremaine and a few others. So how did you choose which books ended up on this list? Because some of these were a little surprising, um, <clears throat> The Outsiders and other things like that. Well, first of all, the last section, um, it's important to under- the note that the title of that chapter is Noteworthy Books of the 20th Century, because not enough time has passed to call it a great book. The reason why we can call classics classics is because they have stood the test of time. These are books that 
are likely to stand this test of time because of their literary acclaim, because of their role in the development of children's literature and um, just in um, the, the importance they have been in children's lives. That doesn't necessarily include books we like <laughs> or agree <laughs> with that are in line with our values. This uh, My book list is not subjective. I did not choose them based on what I felt should be part of the list, but I tried to be as objective as possible and uh, look into history to determine what has actually been important in the great conversation in terms of uh, children's literature. And so I tried really hard to let history reveal it to me instead of me saying, hmm, well, the secret garden must be one of them. So I'm going to go look for a reason to include the secret garden. I didn't do that. I studied history and let it reveal to me what was important in the development of children's literature and in the lives of children themselves. Um, So that is why some of the books that you might not expect are in there, because that is what I discovered, so to speak. I did have to make judgment calls once in a while, but only as I had to, um, you know, and and I tried to keep that to a minimum. So uh, The Outsiders is very uh, important in the development of modern children's literature because of its role in the development of YA and um, how uh, much it's impacted teenage readers. So that doesn't mean, though, that every book should be read by every child. In fact, some of them, I would not let my own child children read, Mm -hmm. uh, especially some of the parents cautioned ones for um, some of them. I did not want to include on the list, but I had to, to pervert, preserve the integrity of the list, which is meant to be objective. So um, parents still need to, you know, look into the books and decide for themselves what is right for their children in, in their education and their, in, in their entertainment needs. And they still need to have an active role. They can't just use this as a list of recommendations. They're not recommendations. They are a presentation of what history has revealed to me as best I can of what the children's great books are. Oh, I love that. And I'm so glad you brought up that last point. So yeah, and you do, um, as you're reading through the book list, you do notice that Sherry has come in here and said, like, parents cautioned here, like, this is a, um, you've labeled each of the books where you feel like important to to pay attention to those labels. Yeah, yeah. Because there's lots of books that might offend somebody. Like I had a student once whose parent did not want her reading fairy tales. I mean, mm-hmm. most of us grew up in Cinderella, Snow White, you know, all those in, in we, you know, don't even think about it. But this parent did not want her reading any fairy tales. And so, um, you know, there's going to, you know, lots of books that I did not put the cautionary label on may not be appropriate for a family. The ones that have the label parents caution, though, are ones that will, in, in a broad sense, offend or disturb families um, and maybe not be appropriate. For example, Harry Potter has been so, uh, so controversial that, you know, of course I wanted to put a label on that one and uh, you know, at the outsiders and and some of the others um, because parents need to pay special attention to those for sure. Yeah. And I love that. And I love that you have created not so much a list of recommendations, but an, an objective list, you know, of books that belong to this canon historically. So let's go back to some of the older ones that you've included on the list that have stood the test of time. And, you know, you start with the Bible. Mm -hmm. Now, that's scripture to me. So I am not in any way trying to reduce the 
the importance of the Bible. <laughs> I'm not that is not meant to diminish it at all, because um, that to me is holy. But I include it in in the literary sense because the Bible stories have made such a powerful impact on Western literature itself, um, in both in the in the adults canons and in the children's canons. So um, the Bible stories used to, in, in that era, in, in the earlier eras, that's one of the main things children read. That mm. was part of their, you know, if you got a story, a lot of times it'd be a Bible story. So, um, you know, that's important to recognize as well, that it does have a role in the development of, of literature um, without diminishing its spiritual importance. Oh, I love that. Yeah, that's, that's really great. And then you move through, um, you move through the ages, you start with the ancients. um, And then you move into the Middle Ages as well. um, And then go all all the way up through those notable books, which you said, you know, of course, we haven't had enough time yet to know if these are going to stand the test of time. But they have had a a certain impact on, uh, on children's literature. Mm -hmm. So what are we getting wrong in regards to how most children are being introduced to literature throughout their educational journey? Well, I've seen um, in home in the homeschooling community, children's classics and adult classics have been championed by many, many homeschool families, much more so than what we see in public education today, uh, maybe private education, but that's a whole another thing I, I don't know enough about. But Um, homeschoolers by and large seem to embrace the classics for their literature study. And I think, I think that's great. But what I have seen that has troubled me is that we tend to try to move our children into the adult literature. What I mean by that is literature that has really not been embraced by children in the, in uh, historically, but, you know, has been pretty firmly in the area of, of adults. And we tend to push our children into that literature kind of early before and often before they've had a really strong foundation in, um, in, the, in the children's classics. So, for example, we might have a, a student reading in ninth grade, Wuthering Heights, without ever having read um, Alice in Wonderland or Treasure Island, which are, you know, key players in, in Western literature and um, both children in, in children's literature. and those. Um, those have also impacted our culture, those two books. And so here we are moving to Bronte or Dickens without having that, you know, really strong foundation in some of the major classics that have impacted children. And that has troubled me too, you know, and I used to work in a bookstore, I used to work for Barnes and Noble and uh, worked for them a few years. And I worked in the children's department for a lot of that time. And so I saw a lot about how families chose books and and, uh, how children uh, chose books and, you know, there were always children, you know, parents and adults who are like, you know, I, I've got to find something for this child. And to me, it's like, there's something for everyone. I, I feel like a lot of kids are bypassing some of these major works like Winnie the Pooh and never reading these. And I wonder, you know, what's, what's going to happen? They grow up and they've never read Winnie the Pooh. If they don't have children there, they might not ever read Winnie the Pooh. How do you grow up without reading Winnie the Pooh? <laughs> you know, <laughs> and, um, and I'm not talking Disney, I'm talking the real thing by, right. Young. you know, um, it, to read Winnie the Pooh is a delight. And even adults like Winnie the Pooh and there's, there's adult spinoffs on Winnie the Pooh, you know, like a Latin version. And 
you know, so um, I, I just feel like a lot of kids are being pushed into the adult ones without ever having that strong foundation. Now, other kids do get a really strong foundation, so they might be ready for some of these adult classics, Bronte, Dickens, Shakespeare, and so on, um, you know, earlier than maybe some other student, uh, other children, because they've read so much um, in the in the children's classics. And maybe they can, you know, make that bridge uh, sooner than than some others. But um, that's the main thing I've seen is it's bothered me is it's just too much adult literature too soon. Um, And by adult literature, I mean, adult literature that has not crossed over to children's literature um, as well. Yeah. So, yeah. And I would make an argument that Winnie the Pooh, honestly, and it, it's just this example of pushing it down. You take a four or five year old and you sit there and try to read Winnie the Pooh with them. And it's like, you know, Pooh is best appreciated by a more snarky nine year old. <laughs> <laughs> That's when they really start to get the humor in it. And then as an adult, I'm sitting there listening to it with my kids because we always do the, uh, the audio version of that one because the uh, all of the accents, you know, it's just it's it's so much easier to listen to than read. As far as I'm concerned, I don't mm, do accents. Yeah, oh. and, um, that. but we just love it. We're rolling on the floor as you know, 11, 12 year olds and me being much older than eleven or twelve. And I think it's really wasted on a four-year-old or five-year-old. So. Well, remember, we can come to literature at different points in our life and get new things out of it. Like you can read The Lion, which in the wardrobe at third grade is a bedtime read aloud with your mom or dad, and then read it again in, in high school, and then read it again when you're 75 years old yeah. and still get something wonderful out of it each time. So that is where the best literature comes in. And, and it, that's the, the great art that we want to expose our children to is the kind of literature that's meaningful across your life. And so I, you know, I want to celebrate that. And that's why I didn't distinguish between, you know, I put good night moon along with, you know, I don't know, whatever novel, um, because to me, art is art. And we don't, you know, people are ready for books at different stages of their life. Some kids can read Anna Green Gables in fourth grade. I wasn't ready for it until I was in junior high. Um, so, you know, we're ready for things at different times in our lives. And I think parents need to think about that when they choose books. Um, is my child ready for this one? Like my, my son started Young Fu of the Upper Yangtze, which is a Newbery Award winner. He did not like it at all, but it was a, it's a good story, but he was not ready. So I just stopped um, and I put it aside. We'll go back to it another time, maybe. That's okay. And I, yeah, and I do. I think that's okay. And I think that's something you would never try to force uh, you know, long division or multiplication on a child who wasn't ready for it. Mm-hmm. And so right. if they're not responding to a book, it very well could be that they're just not ready for it yet. Right. And there's lots of other choices, you know, it's not like, yeah. you know, if you don't read that one, there's not something else that will, that will be right. So it's just I so many that. wonderful books, so many wonderful ones. And there's something for everyone. So do you think part of the issue with trying to force these books down, these kind of adult books that never made it to the children's canon down on some of these kids who are in junior high and high school is the fact that we feel like, well, we only have until they're 18 and mm-hmm. then they're gone and we can't, you know. <laughs> right. right. And some of these kids aren't, are not going to go to college. So we want to make sure they have a strong literary education as possible. And that's a valid concern. But the beauty of the great books and the children's and what I call the children's great books is that many of the like, again, many of the books that are in the children's great books um, list 
are also adult books. So you can still get a really solid literary education well into high school with, with many of the books on this list, like Huckleberry Finn and, um, you know, uh, you know, again, Pilgrim's Progress or the Odyssey or, you know, the King Arthur stories may be told at a higher level, um, uh, like the, the original French one I can't pronounce. Um, the, you know, there, there's plenty in there to keep a student reading um, difficult literature well into high school. But there is at some point, um, once you have a really solid foundation in, in those um, adult slash children's books, um, as well as a straight children's book like Peter Rabbit, you know, you get to a point where if you want your child to go to college, you know, if they want to go to college, there is a point at which you're going to have to push them into uh, more difficult literature. And Shakespeare has got to get in there somewhere. You know, you've got to get in, uh, <laughs> you've got to get in <laughs> some of the difficult poetry. I mean, poetry is really important as well. And that's been dropped a lot in, um, a, lot in a lot of programs as far as what I've seen, which is really tragic. Yeah. Uh, because poetry is is important in its own right, and I've, sometimes I thought about <laughs> doing something with poetry um, to get people back to poetry. But there is a point at which you're going to have to engage. You know, I think my child's ready for Shakespeare. I think my child's ready for Wuthering Heights or Great Expectations or or Anna Karenina. And uh, maybe they need to go to high school and they're going to a, a classical program where they're not going to have a choice. But if they have that strong children's foundation under them, I believe that they'll be ready, especially if they've had a chance to really discuss the themes in those books at a, at a level that's relatable to them uh, so they can go deep into those stories that are meaningful to them and then be able to apply what they learn through those discussions um, into that, that higher uh, adult literature later on. So that's another reason that children's literature study is valuable because we can, we can go deep into it and prepare them for those higher studies. So not only are we building a foundation of, of, you know, the references and allusions and things like that, but also we're kind of honing those basic literary skills on those children's books so they can then turn around and use them on the, on the other books as well. Yeah. And so I feel like if you're going into really difficult adult literature, they're going to spend a lot of that time just trying to understand it, let alone trying to learn how to write a literary analysis, a response essay, you know, notes and outlines. And those are skills in themselves that need to be mastered before you can really, uh, you know, go deep into adult literature because you want to prepare them for the, with those skills so that they are ready to examine the higher adult literature in a deep level. Um, so it's, yeah, you don't, you don't want them to be grasping and, you know, well, I was hanging on with their fingernails, resorting to Cliff's notes because they're just trying to make it. Right. Okay. So in talking about those basic literary skills, you talk about three different literary adventures in the book. Um, so why do you liken the study of literature to adventures? And, and you want to just give me a brief overview of the three different kinds of adventures you talk about? Hmm. Well, to me, reading uh, reading a good book is an adventure in itself. You're going into a new life, new lives, and new places, and and you're experiencing new things that you won't in in your ordinary life. So um, that that's I guess that's why I use the word adventures. But um, though you know, I've got the leisurely adventure, so a way to just um, read books without. Um, without going deep into them, and and you know, just by keeping a a, a reading journal, and so that's one. It's very simple. 
Um, then there's the book clubish adventure where you uh, are accountable to one or more other readers uh, who are reading the same book and you might meet together like in a book club, or you might just, you know, sit on the couch with your, with your mom, who's also reading the same book and you discuss it or, you know, however you want to do it, but you're accountable to someone else and you can have a traditional book club or you can keep it really casual, whatever you want. And so I have some suggestions for that. Um, but then the big one is the scholarly adventure. And I've broken that up into elementary level and secondary level. So elementary would be like, you know, uh, you know, uh, primary grades through maybe fifth or sixth grade. And then the, the scholarly, the secondary adventure would be for junior high and high school. And of course, you know, depending on the student, you know, you might want to borrow from one or the other <laughs> or, or simplify as needed. But those scholarly adventures are meant to uh, help students uh, first of all, it allows parents to study any book without having to locate a curriculum with lesson plans if they just want to do it on their own. Um, and it also uh, so it, ha it also helps students learn how to study literature uh, on their own if they want to. You, you know, if they're they can follow the high schoolers could follow the steps on their own. If, if, if they chose to, if they just like to do things their own way on their own, their own time and allows them to any, choose any book. But also um, the, the basic literary skills that I teach are, are meant to um, kind of decode literary study, I guess. Um, and I based it on Mortimer Adler's classic, How to Read a Book, mm -hmm. which was published in, I want to say the 1940s. I'm not sure, but it is a major classic about uh, active reading skills. And um, it is still a classic, but it's very difficult to read. It's really college level. So um, I've, I thought for a long time about trying to make that book accessible so that um, that classic could be made accessible to, to grade school students and homeschoolers. And so essentially I took his ideas and I used my own, my own education as a, you know, an English education skills, um, you know, in teaching English. And then also Benjamin Bloom's taxonomy of learning uh, of how human beings learn. And I kind of put those together to, to give a roadmap for parents and students to study a book on their own based on Mortimer Adler's classic and Benjamin Bloom. Um, so there's you know, like how to annotate, how to take notes, how to do uh, an outline if you want, how to write a literary analysis essay. And so I lead students through um, an independent study of the books and parents can pick and choose from them. They don't have to do all of them to get value from that. Um, it's really up to them. But in the back and the appendices, I also offer uh, cheat sheets. I offer a couple sample study guides. Um, I offer a reproducible study guide that would go with any book and that, that just is meant to help um, simplify the process and, and, you know, make it less overwhelming. So, yeah, and you really have. You have created a wonderful resource here for homeschooling parents who, you know, maybe don't want to go out and, and buy a literature curriculum. And I know that a lot of times it's I spend the money on a literature curriculum and I feel like we're just rushing through all of these books where what I would exactly really like what you're talking about. <laughs> yes. I what I'd really like to do is like read slower and dig deeper in mm -hmm. a smaller handful of books, but it's like, okay, there's no curriculum for that. Um, mm -hmm. But the way that you've laid it out, as far as these appendices are solid gold, um, you know, the cheat sheets for how to do the adventures, the rubrics for how to grade, even if you haven't read the book, because sometimes if you have multiple children across mm -hmm. multiple ages, it's hard to be able to do that. Right. Um, the different activities for the kids as well. 
yeah. And you just lay out how to do it and kind of make it really doable for homeschooling parents. So I do appreciate that. Mm, I did my best. I hope it, I hope it helps people. That's uh, my goal is to, to help people go deeper into this wonderful art called literature and to really be able to, to enjoy it as, as works of art and in a meaningful way. Um, instead of just this dry academic subject that we kind of rush through, like you said, and uh, I want to make it accessible. So that's my goal. I love it. So the book can be found uh, in Amazon and most bookstores, most places you buy books, correct? I'm not honestly not sure. I, I think it might be at Barnes & Noble too and Ignatius Press. I know it's on Amazon. I just yeah. uh, don't know about bookstores because <laughs> I haven't actually gone to look for my own book. <laughs> if not, I am sure that they could order it for you. But yes, um, always through Ignatius Press, the publisher as well. And I believe we got our copy from Amazon. So um, we will link to that in the show notes. And we will also link um, to Sherry's website as well, Once Upon a Pen, where she offers more insights and some classes there. So Sherry, thank you so much for coming on today and just chatting with me about children's books and your this great resource that you've created for homeschooling parents. Oh, thank you so much for having me. It's been an honor. And there you have it. Now, if you would like links to any of the books or resources that Sherry and I chatted about on today's episode of the podcast, you can find them on the show notes at pambarnhill.com forward slash YMB103. Also, if you have left a rating or review for the Your Morning Basket podcast in your favorite podcast player, we just want to say thank you so much. These reviews mean so much to us because this is how the podcast player knows to push that podcast out to more and more listeners. So if you've taken the time, thank you. Thank you. And if you haven't, and you would like to, we would really appreciate you taking the opportunity to do that. Now I'm going to be back in a couple of weeks with a solo episode. I do believe this is the first time we've ever done this on your morning basket, but it's a solo episode about what happens if you are stuck in a rut with your morning time. We're going to have five different ways for you to mix up your morning time routine and get out of that rut. So be sure to check that episode out in just two short weeks. Until then, keep seeking truth, goodness, and beauty in your homeschool day.